Hey there, special educator. Before we dive into today's episode, I have something exciting to share with you. If you've ever struggled with writing impact statements for your IEPs, and let's be honest here, what special educator hasn't found themselves at some point staring at a blank box and a blinking cursor wondering what in the world to type? My free guide is just what you need to get those brain juices flowing. Introducing Impact Statement Mastery, your step-by-step guide to writing personalized IEPs. This free guide is designed to help you craft impactful, personalized statements with ease. You'll get expert tips and strategies, easy-to-follow formats, and real-life examples that bring theory to life. It's absolutely free and a must-have for every special education teacher and related service provider. To get your copy, just visit www.spedprepacademy.com slash impact statements, or check the link in the episode description. Now let's get started with today's episode. You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferberg, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, and welcome back to the SPED Prep Academy podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer, a special education instructional coach, here to bring you insights, strategies, and support in your special education journey. Now, I know last week that I promised we would be diving into the actual strategies for working effectively with your paraprofessionals, specifically how to move past the I don't know how to be a boss mentality. And don't worry, we're going to definitely cover that topic in depth in a couple of weeks. But today we have a special treat. I had the incredible opportunity to chat with a fellow presenter from the SPED Summit. And I just couldn't wait to share this interview with you, especially since there's still time to sign up for the summit and catch all of those insightful sessions. Our guest today is Lois Letchford. Her story is both personal and inspiring. Lois's journey with dyslexia began at the age of 39, a journey that started when she faced the challenge of teaching her son, Nicholas. This experience was a turning point, leading her to examine her own struggles with reading and how she could overcome them. This self-reflection and determination led Lois to retrain as a literacy specialist, and she spent seven years as the district reading specialist in Lubbock, Texas. There, she dedicated herself to teaching children aged 7 to 16 who had not found success with other reading programs. Her specialization includes working with children diagnosed with dyslexia, developmental language delays, hyperlexia, and other learning disabilities. Excitingly, Lois has also authored her book, Reversed, a Memoir, which I'm sure offers incredible insights into her experiences and expertise. I know you're going to want to listen to Lois. Her accent is just so fun to listen to, and her story is so inspiring. So let's dive in. Well, hello, Lois. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am glad that we were able to connect. Jennifer, I'm delighted to be here. So your session on the summit is called LD Dyslexic Critical Ingredients for Reading Success, correct? Yes, that's right. And I know that you you have quite the story to share with us about your journey with dyslexia and the field of special education. So let's just jump right in there. Can you briefly... Tell us about your story. I can. My story began in 1994 when my second son, Nicholas, went into first grade in Brisbane, Australia, and I knew he had a problem. I didn't know his problem was unbelievably bad. He wet his pants, he bit his fingernails, uh, and he stared into space all throughout first grade. What I didn't know was that the teacher shouted at him. At the end of the year, we do testing 
and he can read 10 words. He's got no strengths, and above all, he has a low IQ. And once you're in that basket, it's incredibly difficult to get out. We had the opportunity to leave Australia. My husband's an academic, and he had study leave in Oxford, England. So for six months in 1995, we took our family to England, and I decided to take Nicholas on. And with that, I go with a series of books called Success for All. Standard, phonics-based, decoding, three-letter words, no pictures. You do it, you do it, you do it. You get to the end of the page, you start again, and it's all gone. No clue. And I was getting very frustrated, and my mother-in-law was with me, and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And that became the number one ideal. Forget everything else. Have him happy in my classroom. I wrote one little poem. He relaxed. We read it together. We found the rhyming words. We just had so much fun. And poem after poem after poem I wrote. And then I come to the, come to the double O's, as in Cook, Nook and Book, and I wrote this little poem about Captain James Cook, the last of the great explorers. And he was the one who completed the mapping of Australia. And with this poem, we followed Cook's journey and while we're doing it, Nicholas says to me, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, that's easy, Nicholas. That's Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? And it floored me because I've never thought of that question. And it also showed me that thinking, his thinking was not from a child with a low IQ. Right. That question, it doesn't come from that child. Fine. And, you know, we do all sorts of things. And I do teach him to decode through another series of books, which was utterly brilliant and really taught me about learning. That's another story. So we re return to Australia. I meet the diagnostician who had done the testing. And I'm just so excited because we've done so well. He's learned so much. He's loved learning. The diagnostician stands in front of me and she says, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact... He's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Wow. That must have been just the most challenging moment, just to stand there and listen to that about your own child. You know, any child, but your own child. I, I, don't, I don't even know what, what did you say to her? I am dyslexic. When someone says something that is so hurtful, I actually can't respond. I just shut down and all I can do is walk away, mm -hmm. which is what I did. And that's what our children do you know when they're when they're presented with these struggles in school they shut down as well so can you tell us more about what did you do how did you continue to support Nicholas that was really funny because it was another coincidence that happened the reading teacher sent Nicholas home with 10 sight words big improvement from 20 10 sight words with two sentences for each word and he came home with the word saw s-a-w and he read the first sentence. He stood in front of me and, you know, you've got to take this big breath because this is really hard. And he read, oh, I saw a cat. And he stopped. And he, he went back and he goes, I was a cat. No, no, no. And he tries again. I add a cat and I asked a cat. And then he just threw up his hands and stopped. The whole sentence was, I saw a cat climb up a tree. And he just read, I saw a cat and stopped. And when I work with teachers, I say to them, what do you think is happening? What's going on in the mind of the child? 
I don't know that we teach teachers to process those kinds of questions. I don't, you know, the teachers that I work with, we're not taught explicitly how to teach reading. I, and it's, it's such a discouragement. It is. However, just listening to Nicholas Reed and analyzing all of the steps he did, because he, you know, he was obviously reading for meaning. You know, he went back and mm -hmm. he read and he tried really hard to do it and then he just threw his hands up. You've got to look at it and say, what's going on? Well, the first thing teachers usually tell me is he's dyslexic. And I say, yeah, so what? That's a label. <laughs> so what? What are we going to do about it? Where's the problem lie? I saw a cat. What do you know about the word saw? How many meanings does the word saw have? Mm -hmm. Does it have three or four? And the first is it's an object, a saw. Go mm -hmm. into any hardware shop and you'll find a saw. The second is to cut. We saw the log. We saw the tree. But you cut the tree in half. And the final one that we use is saw being past tense of the word to see. What's happening in the teaching? teacher has provided only the abstract meaning of the word saw. The child is looking at the concrete meaning. Now it's either a saw in his hand or he's cutting the cat in half and he's going, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. And then the next problem, what's the next problem? Has the child ever seen a cat climbing up a tree? Is it a culturally appropriate sentence or is it just something from a book that the teacher made up? And this is where we've got to connect oral language, written language, and a child's experiences. And that part that really upsets me is Nicholas spent six months in another country looking at things every single day. And no one ever thought to say, Nicholas, bring your photo album to with me. Show me what you looked at. And you say, we saw, we saw, we saw. That's the abstract meaning. But I do, when I teach children the word saw, the first thing I do is go on the internet, type in the word saw, Click on the images. What comes up? There are all your saws. And I teach my children, this word has three meanings. Saw is the first one. Then we get a picture of to cut. And then I walk and talk and read and write. And I talk to people. We talk to the librarian. We walk away, shut the door and say, what were we doing? We saw the librarian. Da, 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 da. When is it happening? Is it happening now? Yeah, it's happening now. It's not. It happened a few minutes ago. And, you know, that instant, that little difference in time changes from to see to saw. Every word in the English language carries meaning. Every word. And never do I say, just learn it. Right. And when a child can't remember it, and particularly the sight words, when they struggle with those abstract sight words, we have to ask why. Why can't that child remember it? And go to, well, what do they know of this word? Where do they use it in oral language? Uh, and, and then how am I going to implement it? How am I going to teach it in a way that the child can remember it? You know, I've, I'm now old and I was teaching boys who were 15 and 16 and they couldn't remember the word what, W-H-A-T. He'd come to it and he would say, what hat? And to do that, to teach him this word, I wrote labels and I had, you know, what colour is your shirt? What is your name? What is in this pot? What, 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 what? And it took me three days for him to move from what to what. 
your perspective on teaching and supporting students with diverse needs has evolved over time because you figured out that teachers weren't doing, that they were feeling this way? It's interesting because how my uh, experience with Nicholas impacts the way I read things. And the paper I read when I went back to do my reading specialist course was written by a professor called Brian Camborn. And the title of the paper was Beyond the Deficit Theory. And it was a general paper that all of the students read. And it was published in 1990. And in that paper, he said, the first thing we do when children fail to learn to read is blame the child. We say, look mm-hmm. at their IQ, look at their home background, look at their educational, look at this, look at that, look at the other. And what we fail to do is that we fail to do just what we do with Nicholas. We fail to show them how the written language works. Or we give examples that are totally inappropriate for the child. What happened with Nicholas? <laughs> and so when I'm reading a paper like this, I'm just not reading it as a student with an abstract concept. I'm connecting it to my life. This is what happened to me. And if it happens to me, it's going to happen to many other children. Yeah, I feel like it's got, we've gotten, our system has, it's just done such a disservice to kids because I don't, I don't know. I asked Lisa Parnello, she's also on the panel. I asked her a couple weeks ago, do we feel like it is more common? And no, it's just that we're, we're not doing what we need to be doing to teach kids correctly. And so we, we find that our experiences in life, they, you know, your experience and the things that I've gone through, they provide us with these valuable opportunities to reflect and to grow. And so given your remarkable journey with Nicholas and your transformation as an educator through all of your research and your books and everything, can you share some of those of the most profound insights and lessons that you've learned that have helped you grow as an educator? I go back to what happened in Oxford in when Nicholas was seven years old and this change from standardized reading program, just doing some writings and poems. I did two things unwittingly. The first was I had Nicholas's attention. And the second, I created an active learner. And I go to the book that's been published, you know, in 2020, I think, and it's called How We Learn by Professor Stanislas Dehaney, neuroscientist and, and researcher. And if you look him up on YouTube, he's got lots of videos. And he said, how do we learn? What do we need? We need to get a child's attention and we need to create active learners. You know, we talk about phonemic awareness and phonics and decoding and X, Y, and Z, but we can't do those things without attention and active learning. <clears throat> I wrote my story for many reasons, but one of them was uh, the first student I taught after Nicholas was 13 years old and he'd spent four years in a phonics-only reading program and came out non-reading. Every day he went to school, every day he went to a reading teacher and did this program, he could sprout the rules of the language to me. He couldn't read a sentence accurately. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they didn't get his attention. Yeah. And they certainly were not interested in creating active learners. Just do this and we'll be all right. Doesn't work like that. I get quite emotional about all of this because Nicholas's journey, all of it, from beginning to end, happened by a series of accidents of our position in society, 
where we happened to be, uh, the names that he was called, the changes that happened just through the course of our life and, and through my husband's world. And without those extreme advantages, my son would not be where he is today. You know, if we had never left Brisbane, Australia, mm -hmm. the school would have been in command and they would have said, well, he just can't do it. He just doesn't have a brain for language. Uh, you know, and then, you know, so that becomes a critical component. It is a social justice issue. Why do we have to be so privileged? Why do we have to be able to afford uh, tutoring after school to have our children learn to read? Worldwide, we've got to do a better job of training teachers to yes. teach children. What I want is reflective teaching. I want teachers mm -hmm. to say, what I've got in this book, what I'm doing, is it working? Yes or no? And if it's, if it's working, great. Whew. Hey, but you know what? This little kid in the corner, he's not getting it. Or she's not getting it. How are we going to deal with that? And I know I was in a school and, you know, there were about 10 or 15 in a learning support class. A first and second graders. Well, that's a failure in itself. You can't do that. And I do feel for teachers because when you're given eight or ten children and they're all struggling, you can only have minimal input. Or you're giving them one day a week for 30 minutes. There's no magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a special ed teacher's nightmare. Here, here's your 30 minutes. Fix them up. You know, make miracles. Do wonder with this child. Fix them, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I loved hearing your story. I think it's amazing. It's been such a pleasure to talk to someone who is so passionate about getting kids to learn. And I feel like we all need to do a little bit of reflecting on our own practices. And you sharing your journey and insights with us has is a testament to the power of the mindset and the importance of believing in the potential of every child. And you know, Lois, just your dedication to creating active learners and your unwavering belief in Nicholas is just truly inspiring and I really appreciate you coming and sharing your story. Uh, I, you know, I just have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and sharing it because so many children are left behind. And once, once we get through this early learning business, you, you know, you get children, it's, it's a language difficulty. It's not a learning difficulty. Mm -hmm. You know, once they can learn, they can learn. Because the long-term impact of my story is that Nicholas graduated in the top 20% of his high school class in 2007 in Lubbock, Texas, in subjects like physics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, he did it all. Mathematics was his strength. He completed two undergraduate degrees in Australia, two honours undergraduate degrees, five and a half years to complete them, and then finally he completed a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. Well, now you need to go back and tell that diagnostician, Here, here's that child you said was the worst of the worst. So that's just, I, I'm glad you got to tell me the end of that story because those success stories, we need to hear them. We need to revel in them and give us some hope. Yes. Nicholas is an incredibly unusual character because he sits on either end of the spectrum. The language component of his learning still sits down at the second and third and fourth percentile. The science and mathematics is the absolute opposite. 
the mathematics, some components like our spatial awareness and pattern recognition places him on the 99th percentile. Wow. Yet if you talk to him, Nicholas, you will find he's slow. And, and when we talk to people and they're slow with reactions and with thinking, what's the first thing we think? It's not very smart. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's a continuous struggle. It doesn't go away. And, and there are so many stories to come out of Nicholas's story. One is the ongoing support that they need to be successful uh, and build on their strengths all the time. Can I tell you another story that I didn't share? Of course. Nicholas graduated with his PhD in 2018 and I said to him, you know, Nicholas, you've done incredibly well. I don't remember or I don't know anything that happened in that first year of school. He sat in front of me with his bottle of water and his tongue went round and round in his mouth and he couldn't talk. And then the tears started to, to run. It was the first time I recognised that trauma had occurred to such an extent in first grade that he couldn't even talk about it. After all that time, wow. Then I said to him, Nicholas, I can't, I can't change that, but can you tell me about the learning you and I did the next year? Now, instead of tears, we've got this huge smile. And he said to me, you, you wrote poems for me. You wrote Mug of a Bug and Windmill on a Hill. He remembered the poems that I had written 20-plus years earlier. That's how powerful they were. And then he said, ah, you know, you taught me about Captain Cook and the mapping and the world mapping. He said, I'll never forget that. Learning about Captain Cook taught me to love learning, and I never want to stop learning. And then he started giggling, like a seven-year-old, and he said, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell, and I wrote the ingredients for the witch's spell. And I said, I did, Nicholas, I did do that. And he said, I don't remember what they were, but I just remember it being so funny. Do you have those poems? Could you share those with us? I do. I do have those poems. And I've adapted them and changed them again since then. But what was interesting is I didn't put that poem in the book about the witch's spell, because I deemed my poem too poor for anyone else to read. What I didn't know was that emotions are connected to learning. I'm writing this poem in the order of learning the words SP. It was spin, spot, spell, spit. And they were all put into this funny rhyme, and it really wasn't a very good rhythm, and there were problems with it. What Nicholas remembers is writing that witch's spell and turning it into something that was just so huge you know, 20 plus years later, it's the most powerful thing I did, along with the mapping. So yeah. when we're working with children to remember we're doing it for the long term, not the short term, and, and the emotions we set with our learning, if you just got to sit there and do that, kid, stick with us for life. Yeah. Yeah. We have to remember, we have to be cognizant about the way that we speak to kids and the things that we're forcing upon them and what we are and what we aren't doing with them. I think that's very important. Well, Lois, I, I truly appreciate you. I think I, I think I could just stay on this call for another hour and just, just listen to you. I love your accent. I love everything that you have to say. But where, if 
if somebody wanted to learn more from you, how could they connect with you? I still have a website. Uh, it's www.loisletchford.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. So I'm on various places. I've been more quiet lately for various reasons. I've had a skiing accident, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm still above all passionate about saying don't let labels limit us, limit children or us and, you know, get children's attention and create active learning. Don't let labels limit us. I like that. All right. Well, Lois, thank you again. And hopefully we can connect sometime in the future and, and collaborate on something else. I absolutely love it. Thank you, Jennifer. Such a great episode. Before we wrap up, I want to share something special that Lois has provided to you as a listener of the podcast. She has written a book titled Hands-On Learning, which is a collection of those poems that she mentioned and connected learning activities. This book is specifically designed to engage students and assist with the foundational stages of literacy. It is a great tool for any special education teacher who is looking to add some creative and effective strategies to their toolkit. So if you are interested in getting a copy of Hands-On Learning, please connect with Lois on her website, www.loisletchford.com. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can go directly there and just send her a message asking for the book. And she said that she would be more than happy to share this resource with you. And that's a wrap on today's episode of the SPED Prep Academy podcast. As we close, I want to remind you about the power of being a reflective teacher. Reflect on your practices, your successes, and the challenges that you face. This reflection is key to growing and improving as a special educator. Thanks for sticking with me until the end. I can tell that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love it if you'd head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.